Welcome to the Take Good Care podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Bradshaw. No one wants to become highly skilled at navigating a medical crisis by actually navigating their own medical crises. But I'm here for it. I'm here to help you avoid the learn-as-you-go education in healthcare that I've experienced throughout my own healthcare journey. And I'm also here to facilitate inspiration with guests who get you. We get you. And we're here to build community. So let's get started. Now, I did say that you would hear inspirational stories on the Take Good Care podcast, and that is so true of today's episode. You'll hear an overview of Trina and Ryan's medical journey and how they're connected, how their stories are connected. But we mentioned about three quarters of the way through the show, so I want to mention it here, that in addition to Trina being a transplant recipient, she is also a transplant surgeon. How about that? There are a few things I enjoy more than sharing a big love story. And Trina and Ryan's is definitely one of big love. I have been wanting to talk to both of you since I read your story in the Houston Chronicle. And I'm so, so happy you accepted my invitation. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you for inviting us. You're welcome. Thank you. You have such a remarkable story that I literally don't even know where to start. And I've been doing <laughs> it for a long time. So let's start by saying that you two are, as far as anyone knows, uh, the only liver transplant parents, both having received a liver transplant and now being parents of not one or two, but three children. So congratulations for that. Thank you. Thank you. Let's go back to your beginning. I guess we'll start with you, Trina. You yeah. are the first ever recipient of a liver transplant from in Florida at the time, at two years old. That's right. Uh, my transplant was in uh, January of 1984. And so it was just really a different era. Um, transplantation at that time was experimental and um, really the only center even willing to attempt children or transplants on children was in Pittsburgh. And that was um, Dr. Tom Starzl. You relocated for transplant, which people don't realize a lot of families have to do that. We had to do that. My father's actually Norwegian. He was um, born and raised in Norway and he was you know, the Norwegian Navy. So I was actually a dual citizen. And, um, and so we initially were going to live in Norway, which is why my first name is, you know, Norwegian, Norwegian spelling. But then I, I got sick and obviously we couldn't, we couldn't go back. So we ended up staying here in the United States. My mom's American. Um, and I was born in Miami. So we ended up staying here, but the only center in the whole country that was willing to try and do a liver transplant on a child was Pittsburgh. And when we got there uh, to UPMC, we were told that there were 50 children under the age five, all waiting for a liver transplant. And that if we were lucky enough to actually get one, there was a 30% chance for six month survival. Wow. So you are a 39 year liver transplant. That's right. Next January will be the big 4-0. <laughs> My goodness. <laughs> so what was your prognosis without a transplant? Um, well, at the time that I actually got my liver, they said I wouldn't have lasted another 48 hours. I mean, I was really at the end. I was very, very sick, failure to thrive. You know, I, my, my daughter, who's a year and a half now, weighs more than I do. That's amazing. You know? 
right at, at the time of my transplant, which is just mind-boggling to me. And how long how long did you wait? So I was born with a genetic condition called alpha one antitrypsin deficiency that um, caused my liver to harden and fail and become cirrhotic. It took quite a long time to get a diagnosis because then it was a rare diagnosis. Now we're much more aware of it. And it's become was kind of- Was it 12 or 14 hospitals your parents? Yeah, lucky number 13. 13. Finally, okay. Boston Children uh, figured out what was wrong with me. And that's really to the credit of my mom, who is, um, I can only say, a saintly caregiver because she literally took me to one hospital after another after another. And when she went to Boston Children's, I mean, she's told me the story a thousand times. You know, she took the file and kind of put it in the garbage can and said, please start over. We've missed something. And and made them kind of redo all of the testing from scratch. And that's where they finally figured out that um, I, in fact, did have this genetic condition. It's really smart to let them look at it with fresh eyes without somebody else's interpretation because that er interpretation hasn't gotten you very far. Exactly. Exactly. And so um, my mom, you know, she's she's quite the historian and she has the records from, you know, back in the early 80s of all these different encounters and physician visits. And she actually reached out to the physician who diagnosed me um, not too long ago and told him, you know, what, what had happened and what I've become. And uh, he's now the dean of a major medical school. And he he wrote her back and said how he had been moved to tears to hear that, you know, I actually survived. I was doing so well so you know to the caregiver's credit you know that's the reason I'm here I certainly can't take credit for it I kind of joke sometimes I just survived it but my mom my mom really uh is the reason that I'm actually still here well I'm gonna want to talk to your mom sometime too if she's open to it uh but... block off a lot of time and then you Ryan let's talk about you had a liver disease as well that required transplant obvious since you're both transplant recipients and your your story started a, a little bit la later age in terms of needing a transplant and but also having a chronic illness yeah i was born with uh, uh and diagnosed with biliary atresia at about six weeks and i, I got a um kasai procedure basically biliary atresia for anyone who doesn't know is a defect in the bile ducts, uh, a missing, uh, an partial or total absence of bile ducts. So uh, the Kasai procedure is usually meant as a temporary fix, kind of the bridge to transplant. So most, you know, most kids uh, end up getting transplanted pretty fast. Uh, somehow I lasted about 27 years. And, but you had some ill, you know, I you had stomach aches, you had some issues that you dealt with, but nothing that said, hey, we need to get you listed until after you and Trina had met. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, I would get my, I would go to my GI doctor. I would get my labs every six months or so. Everything was good. Um, so I was never really sick as a child, young adult, other than you know the initial illness as a you know when I was a baby at a, at age uh, twenty seven. We were about six, seven months into dating and. Uh, that's when I, I started to go down. I got really well, sick. let's talk about this dating. I thought <laughs> when I read the story about how you, you started out, you met in a in an organization that supports people who are going through liver, um, chronic liver, liver illness. And you'd responded to it, uh, a question he'd had and you did it privately. And 
And then you guys hit it off right away. It's what I read. Yep. And it's true. <laughs> so then it became hundreds of emails by the time you two met. And let me tell you, that's risky because I've done some online dating, which is not the same as what you're describing, but <laughs> you know, the word is you gotta meet right away. And I've I've suffered my lumps for not doing that a couple of times. It worked out for you two, which is wonderful. So let's talk about that courtship. Obviously, you probably didn't want to spend all your time talking about the fact that you're both liver patients and you've been through these um, hardships in your healthcare, but the connection was there for the familiarity of having someone who knows how you feel. Yeah. Yes. Um, it was it was tough, you know, because I didn't get sick, like I said, till about six, seven months in. So, uh, but having someone with me who could identify, even though she was a baby, you know, when she got sick and she doesn't remember all that, but just having somebody who knows what I'm going through and who can at least empathize was, you know, I think life-saving. I, I was very stubborn, very, very stubborn about going to the doctors and things. And I didn't even want to go to the doctor when I was getting, you know, when I first got sick, I called her up and I'm like, I'm throwing up. I think I'm yellow. I'm I think gonna, I'm yellow. <laughs> yeah. I can't keep any food down. Something's wrong. You know, maybe I should just take a nap. Um, you know, but you had to teach him a, a few lessons in compliance then. Yeah. I, I call it tough love. I don't, I don't think he always appreciated that, but, uh, but it was always coming from the right place. You know, um, I wasn't a doctor yet when I, um, you know, first noticed that he wasn't, um, getting the care he needed partially because he was a little stubborn and didn't want to go, but also partially when he got admitted and his bilirubin was 30 times the normal limit. Yeah. Uh, I, I was not, let's just say satisfied by the answers we were receiving. Uh, I knew enough about liver disease to know that something was very, very amiss and that we were not, we were not getting to the, the root cause and the bottom of things. And my mother, who is not clinical, she's not medical. Of course, she's been through the whole She's your honorary thing. physician. Yeah. She's, I mean, she's, She's certainly got enough of exposure, even if she hasn't been in a classroom for formal teaching. She she knows enough from just being around myself and my care in the hospital environment all these years um, that she actually somehow earned a position on the on the board for UNOS as a public member, where she would grant status upgrades as the you know the public vote as to whether or not someone should be given priority for a, a transplant access on a waiting list. So she did have some baseline level of clinical knowledge. And when I told her, you know, about Ryan being sick and he was living up north and I was concerned and unhappy, you know, about the care he was getting, I was going to go up there. So I called her and told her the labs and she's like, you know where this is going, Trina, you know that, you know what this means. And I said, yeah, he's, he's going to end up needing a liver. I don't think Ryan really knew that yet. And I certainly didn't want to tell him because I didn't want to keep, you know, take his hope away. But I knew enough then to be scared, but not enough to really be helpful. And so that's about the time when I said, you know what, I'm going to do this. I'm actually going to go to medical school. And that's kind of when I decided that, that I was going to change my plan a little bit. That was a catalyst for you. Yeah. And then even, okay, so then Ryan, now you know that the next steps for you are transplant. And I'm wondering, or getting close to it, I'm wondering, Trina, what about your transplant and the guidelines or provisions or the anti-rejection meds, whatever it was that you were 
prescribed, whatever you were told back then in, in 84, had much of that changed? Ryan was facing transplant. I'm sure it was a very different picture for him than it was for you so many years ago. Very different era. So when I was transplanted, they gave the amount of medication to my little 19 pound body that we would give to a man who was, you know, over 250 pounds. Wow. You know, it's just, we've learned so much and we've come so far in our technology. Ironically, we still use a number of the same medication, but we've gotten a lot better at dosing and tailoring therapy and things we didn't, I'm sorry, things we didn't have uh, previously. Having said that, you know, when I was a teenager, I had a major rejection episode and I was in the hospital and I, I joke I was a guinea pig for ProGraph or FK506 as it was called then right. because right. it had just come out. And so um, my labs were really high and I was inpatient and it wasn't because of, you know, any noncompliance, which is common in teenagers. It was just, I grew a lot and the projections for medication to body size changed. They switched me from cyclosporin to ProGraph. I took that for a couple of years without, without any incident at all. Ryan got put on ProGraph as well. I was kind of expecting that. And so Ryan, what were you expecting? Did you have any idea what to expect? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, at the, the initial doctor's appointment where I was basically told, you know, here's what's going to happen. You're going to need a liver transplant and, you know, I'm going to get worked up and go to all these different doctor's appointments. Um, but it was very positive. And I know that's probably hard for like when you're really sick to think about. But, you know, yeah, I was 27. I was young. I was relatively healthy. You know, I'd gone to the gym every day up until, you know, getting sick and everything. So he was very like confident that I'd get through the surgery and just told me to go home and watch comedies and laugh and just, you know, be positive. By this time, Trina, you were a decades long transplant recipient. So you had that, Ryan, I'm sure made you feel like, okay, I could get this transplant and live a really long and full life. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> the, there was another doctor there who was like, he probably thought he was being reassuring, but he was like, oh, you know, 80% chance you'll you'll live at least five years. And I'm just like, ah. He said 85, yeah. 80, yeah. 85% percent survival. Yeah. Uh, was that what it was? I don't know. But I was like, okay, bro. And, and I was like, <laughs> thankfully I had her because, you know, there was none of that, like, uncertainty and I, I i i realize not you know everybody goes through different paths and 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 some people's you know journeys are more uh tumultuous and stuff but i was positive and 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 she helped with that so she kind of talked me down when i when that guy was kind of being like yeah you'll probably be you know 85 percent chance you'll live another five years when i was diagnosed with cancer i remember um hearing this statistic i had hodgkin's which is a very treatable form of cancer if found early and treated well the first time and all the other things that they tell you. However, it was the 89% chance of 15-year survival or something. And I, I needed to understand what did that mean because does that mean I'm dying when I'm, you know, uh, what was I, 24, so plus 15 when I'm 39 years old? I don't, I don't know what this means. And I think that a lot of people who are listening to this pay attention to those numbers and think about your numbers, Trina. Your numbers, I mean, six months. Abysmal, maybe, I know. At, you know, and you're two years old and now you're 41 and a transplant surgeon we should mention and and the, the mother of three kids married to a wonderful man who's also a transplant patient. So 
I don't really know. I mean, I'm sh- I know that there are, and I've interviewed thousands of people over the years, but your story in particular, you it's it's a testament to not listen to the numbers, to really just own your own story and how you face something and having a doctor that's positive, navigating it from your own point of view, no matter what they say. As a physician, I really tried to pay close attention to how I communicate with patients and the message I convey. How much do you think your attitude affects the outcomes? Very significantly, very significantly. You know, I can honestly say I've cared for a lot of patients on the provider side, and you can tell which patients are going to do well based on how involved they are in their own care and how motivated they are and how willing they are to work through the struggles. Because everyone has struggles, but it's how you respond to those struggles and how you advocate for yourself and, you know, play an active role in your healthcare that really determines how well you do. Because, you know, I can encourage you, and but I can't, I can't do everything for you. And I actually had a patient um, not too long ago who saw me in clinic and this, this poor woman, she had had a liver transplant. She had a very rough course post-op. I was demonstrating a lot of tough love. Let me put it that way. I was not, not always kind because that's what she needed. She needed someone to push her. I saw her in clinic and I said, you know, I'm sorry. I was so tough on you. And she gave me the biggest hug and she was like, it's okay. If you weren't mean to me, I wouldn't be here. You know, thank you for, for saying what I needed, you know? And so sometimes like you have to be a little assertive, <laughs> you know, and you, and you have to push people and help them to realize that, you know, we can do this together, but you have to meet me halfway. And Ryan, uh, did, did her tough love teach you compliance and, you know, this is what you're signing up for and this is what it requires and this is what we're doing? Yeah. I mean, (laughs) I, I certainly like, you know, I knew there was no other option, you know, transplant is not an elective procedure. It's not, you know, if you need to transplant, it's because the alternative is death. And so, um, I'll, you know, I'll take the medicine. I'll, uh, stay away from cats. We didn't have cats, but that's like one thing. They're like, you know, I'll stay away from litter box. I'm like, I'll do whatever. You know, I was. I will hang around litter boxes. Uh, yeah, I was looking forward to um, to the transplant because I, I, I just, I was, you know, I had a really positive outlook on it, and I, I, you know, and. Do you remember feeling better right away? For a couple of days, and then. Uh, you had a very atypical post-op course. I yeah, he like, had he had a rough time. I did have a rough time post-transplant. Um, aside from the. Just the the aches and pains of of you know the the surgery itself. I had a lot of complications for like the first six months, so um, that was tough. And how long has it been since your transplant? May will be fifteen years. Fifteen years. So yeah. for anyone who's listening, even if they have six months of tough and transplant yeah. is, I mean, there's a huge responsibility that goes along with that. Oh yeah, absolutely, a huge responsibility to be the compliance that goes along with that and all the things that are required of you, that's what you sign up for. And I'm sure it's not always easy, but 15 years later, here you are, you look fantastic, both of you. Um, you. And so for people who think this isn't quite what I signed up for, is it worth it? What do you say to them? Oh yeah. I mean, it's absolutely worth it. I mean, you know, the complications, yeah. You know, rejection, 
sounds really bad. A lot of times it's corrected with medication. Um, so, you know, I had a major rejection, um, but I did not lose the, you know, liver just, you know, after the, after the initial, the initial six months or so, I've, I've pretty much, it's, it's thankfully it's been really good since then. Good. And then Tree, let's talk about you deciding to become a physician. You decided to become a doctor, partly seeing Ryan through what he was going through. And then I read that partway through, you decided I'm going to be a surgeon and everyone around you is saying, of course, you're going to be a surgeon. It took you a minute to, to figure that out for yourself. And now you're a transplant surgeon on top of all of that. So I had the fortunate or unfortunate experience, depending on how you look at it, of having a lot of early exposure to transplant surgeons. You know, I, because I was, you know, exhibit A for so long, you know, I would go to fundraising events or community awareness events, even as a child, you know, I would go and, and be like the, the little token guest speaker to help them, you know, generate support. And I would, rem I remember very clearly saying to my mom, who was, you know, always with me, like, why is, you know, Dr. So-and-so's kid here with him. Like, isn't it kind of late? I mean, I know why I'm here, but why are they here? This doesn't seem like the right place for a child. My mom ever so sweetly like leans and whispers in my ear, well, honey, they didn't come to these events. They would never see them because they're always working, you know? And so it was kind of ingrained in my head that if you went into medicine, particularly surgery and transplant surgery, that you sacrificed your life, that that was it. That was your full commitment in life and things like children and all of that were were very much secondary. So I always had an interest in transplant. I always had an interest in, in medicine. And I was a biology major because I happened to like biology, not because I was pre-med. So I then, uh, during between my third and fourth year of undergrad, I went to Australia and I lived in Australia for three years. I worked for a big nonprofit, the world's largest nonprofit for those affected by organ donation and transplants called Transplant Australia. And I really liked that work. Um, so I kind of more envisioned myself going that way. But then when I came back to the States, um, I got a job at the organ procurement organization, working for a boss um, who was just wonderful, absolutely wonderful. She was a pathologist by training and she was the medical director for the OPO, the procurement organization. And um, my job, at least on paper, was to do donor chart reviews and quality assurance work. And I annoyed that poor lady so much. I would go to her and say, excuse me, why do you give T4 to donors? And excuse me, why do you do this? And where can I read about that? And finally, she takes me out for pizza one day and says, why are you not applying to medical school? I was like, well, I never really, you know, seriously considered it. What were you doing then? And how old were you? So it was between my third and fourth year of college. And so I had just come back um, from being overseas. And so I was finishing my fourth year and kind of trying to figure out what exactly I was going to do with my life. <laughs> right. And uh, so she was encouraging me. I said, well, my A's in biology are now seven years old because I took these three years off. So I'm not sure that carries a lot of weight anymore. So I was offered a job to work in perfusion at the OPO. Basically, I call it kidney babysitting, but it was you know, maintaining the kidneys thoroughly while they're between homes. Um, so I was studying and finishing my fourth year of college and decided to get a master's degree. And that's right around the time I met Ryan online. And so then I, I got the master's and Brian moved down here and he got his transplant not long after that. And then um, 
I applied to medical school. And then so you, you you asked Ryan to move to where you were so that he would have the care that you knew was would get him where he needed to be. I did because I went up to Connecticut where he was living at the time. And like I'd previously alluded to, you know, I was a little not real satisfied with the care he had been receiving. And I literally said, you know, well, you've been talking about getting out of the cold snow anyway. I know some people down in Miami. Uh, the surgeon who was the fellow at the time that I had my transplant in Pittsburgh, Dr. Tazakis, he was now running the Miami transplant program. So, and he was looking after me. So I'd known him ever since I was a child. He he loves to tell people how I used to bite and kick him. And I have to explain that was a decade ago or 20 years ago or whatever it was. Uh, not lately. Not lately. And uh, so I said, you know, you, we've been talking about moving south. Why don't you come down? And so somehow I managed to convince him to come down and get evaluated for transplant there. I want to talk, too, about your decision to have children. I, I'm, not, I'm not, I don't know, is it risky because you're a transplant patient? Are, were the medications a, a risk or is there a barrier that you didn't have to worry about for your children? Like, how did you decide that you would have children? So there are special considerations, particularly regarding immunosuppression and its effects on pregnancy and child development. Um, so there's a registry out of Thomas Jefferson University, the National Transplantation Pregnancy Registry, and um, they house a tremendous amount of data on pregnancy and um, outcomes after birth from both the maternal and the paternal side being recipients, being transplant recipients. So that was kind of my first stop when I started to think about this. I, I reached out for some data and for some information, spoke to their principal investigators who are wonderful people. I can't say enough great things about them. And then I met with Dr. Tazakis and the maternal fetal medicine doctors in Miami where I was in medical school. And my situation is very unique in that I feel like I need to put a disclaimer on it. Right. That, yes, that, please do if you need to. Yeah, that I was part of a clinical trial overseen by Dr. Starzl and Dr. Tazakis when I was a teenager. And so I've actually been immune tolerant since I was 16. So I've been- immune tolerant mean? So it means my body no longer requires immunosuppression. So I took it for a very long time. I had a major rejection episode. You know, I, I'm not advocating please for anyone to alter their medication, medication dosages. As a transplant surgeon, that is like the worst thing I could ever possibly advocate. So please don't do that. I was part of a formal trial and I was I was weaned off my medicines um, under supervision. I was afraid, honestly, because there was no data, really any recommendation. Yeah, so, <laughs> so it really, really is. It, there's no two stories. No two journeys are alike. No, they're really not. But I knew that we really wanted children. That's something that we had talked about several times. And so um, we decided purposefully, it was a, a, a not an accidental decision, a very well thought out decision um, to have our first child while I was finishing my classroom time in medical school. So um, our oldest son, Anderson, was born at the start of my third year of medical school. It is about making an, an informed decision, whatever it is. Whatever yeah. the case. But, you know, I think a lot of people that I talk to that I try to help might not necessarily at first even know where to get those kind of answers. What I try to teach people is build a team of trusted providers. Most definitely develop a succinct and informed voice in your healthcare. 
And I feel like you both, especially you being a provider, understand the importance of that what that provider team looks like for you. I'm sure that they were able to give you lots of information to help you make an informed decision and then help you once you made that decision, okay, this is how this is how this looks now. I have to say, you know, our I can't say enough good things about our team. You know, I I went to them, both the, you know, the OBGYN doctor, the maternal medicine doctor and the transplant surgeons. And they really um, were gracious with me and my, you know, plethora of questions. I mean, even when Ryan was was having complications post-transplant, I remember literally taking my med school anatomy book to the surgeon and being like, show me what you're going to do. Explain to me like I need to understand and you know, like now it's a little comical, but he kind of, you know, he humored me. He was like, okay, let's talk about it. He drew me a diagram and, you know, walked, walked through what he was thinking. They welcome, I, a good provider welcomes the questions. Yeah. And I wonder too, as a physician now, how much is impacted by you being a patient too? I think quite a bit, at least certainly in how much I explain to patients. I definitely notice that I spend extra time going through things. I strongly encourage them to make me a list of questions. I say that well, pretty much daily, you know, on rounds, make me a list of questions, write them down, I'll come back. But what I don't want is I don't want the encounters that I have as a provider to be focused on me or my history. So instead, you know, if it will benefit them in some way, then I will disclose that I am a patient, you know, I've had a transplant. Most commonly, that's in regards to something dealing with medications, you know, and they'll say, you just don't understand, say, actually, I do. And then we can have, you know, that conversation about, you know, remembering to take your tacrolimus and not taking it until you've had your blood drawn in the morning, you know, things like, you know, small things that um, are important. You, you, it's not an automatic thing that people necessarily know about you. I mean, unless they've watched television and read the news. <laughs> but, you know, some people might choose you, um, you know, if they have that option because of that. Uh, and then let's just get to the part. You talked about how, and talk about both you and Ryan, your family life. You talked about becoming a, in, working in medicine, let alone being a transplant surgeon, how that would affect your work-life balance. And how do you two manage that with three children? Ryan's a saint. <laughs> I I have a a, a a very flexible job uh, working with great people, uh, including a boss who is very understanding and and. Um, and you've had the same job since your transplant. Yeah, yeah, I've had the same job. I've been working with the same job for a little over fifteen years. So, so he's cool, and you know I get the kids to school in the morning and I get them, you know, home and uh, doctor's appointments. And, and she, you know, Trina is able to make, you know, she's able to make a decent amount of the doctor's appointments. She even helps, you know, with, with uh, school pickups when she can. So it's gotten a little bit easier now that she's not, you know, in residency or fellowship. So, yeah, I mean, that's how we make it work is that, you know, I'm able to be flexible when she can't be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So and I think that's true in a lot of professions, right? A lot of, yeah. yeah. Parents are making it work and single parents making it work. You're just making it work. Yeah. Training was really hard. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm glad I did it. I had wonderful training. I trained at Oshner and I cannot say enough good things about that program, particularly the surgeons. I owe them so much. But the, the training schedule is, uh, you know, 12 days on, a 24-7 call, and then two days off. 
And where I trained, you know, number one liver program in the country for volume. And so, and I was the only fellow, not complaining, just saying. So I was gone a lot. I mean, I really was. I was gone all the time. Now that I'm faculty, it's a lot better. Um, so, you know, I've, I've kind of paid my dues, so to speak. But if I didn't have a really strong spouse, like this would not have worked. Just the sense I get from the two of you and what uh, the chances were that the two of you would meet and the chances that you would be involved in Ryan Nee and his transplant. And I think that I was just talking with my sister-in-law the other day about how it's just the little things that add up that we really pay attention to in life. You know, the struggle is real, whatever you have to do to get to the simpler place that you're in, but it's still, you know, a work in progress all the time. It's one of the things I think about when people are going through illness. You can be having a bad day, and then the next day you get this news and you can't change it back, and you just wish you could go back to the the daily grind struggles that we really take for granted. Yeah, I agree. Very much so. I am reminded of that all the time, you know, with my patients too. Well, I appreciate both of you so much and taking this time to talk with us. And um, the very first story I've ever shared within the Take Good Care app was your story. And I didn't even know how to post it yet because I'm still just learning how to use the app that I built. And I said, oh, I'm going to reach out to them. I wonder if they'll come on the show. So I'm just grateful for your time. And I know that we tried this a couple of different times and I had something and you had something. So it finally worked out. And I think that you're an inspiration to people who are coming into this app and into this community looking for education, but also support and inspiration. The anecdotal stuff, knowing about people like you who survive what seems the impossible is is what I'm here for. Thank you so Thank much you. for this. You know, I think, you know, we can't have enough positive, positive support, you know, amongst each other. You know, there's a lot of hate in the world today. And I think it's time that we kind of counterbalance that and, and support each other, help each other, you know, and, and really um, move forward. And I think that you're doing a great job of that. Thank you for that. Thank you. Take good care.